All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, if you have your statement of faith, I'm going to explain just for a minute what that is. I wonder how many of you know what it, kind of know what a statement of faith is. Anybody? Okay, a few of you. Um, basically, a statement of faith is a document that defines our church's doctrine. Um, <clears throat> it, it sets the guardrails of what we as a church believe. So, if you look at the first uh, statement there, you notice it starts with the words "we believe," and each statement going down uh, does so as well. That's already set, Catherine. That's good to go. Um, so basically, this is just defining what our church believes. And you notice the first sentence above the statement of faith there uh, says, the following comprise the scriptural beliefs of this church and its members. So everything in this statement is important. It's all there for a reason. And uh, we can certainly disagree as a church on, on different matters, uh, but these are things that we don't disagree on as a church. Um, so you, you might believe Jesus was you know, 34 years old when he died, and I might think he's 33. That's something we can disagree with, no problem. Uh, but if you don't think Jesus rose from the dead, now we're not even a part of the same religion. So this is, this is just defining what our church uh, believes. Uh, it, is, it is binding on our members. You'll notice that also um, at the top there and at the bottom, it mentions that this statement is binding upon our church members, meaning in order to be a member of this church, uh, you have to sign basically that you agree with our church doctrinal statement. Now, with that, I want to just kind of cover quickly a few of the types of things that are included in this statement. Uh, first of all is, like I said, essential Christian doctrines. So the virgin birth of Christ, his bodily resurrection, uh, things like that are covered in the statement, obviously. Uh, another type of topic is what I would call denominational distinctives. So um, something like the mode of baptism. Is that a new clock? Who brought that in? Where'd that come from? Diana, thank you. I just noticed that. That's really nice. And it, and it works, too. I'm not used to a clock working back there. Now, is that a hint that I preach too long? Is that what that is supposed to mean? I don't know. Okay. Um, anyways. Uh, so denominational distinctives. So, for instance, the mode of baptism. Um, that is something... I, I, I know many great Christians that disagree on the mode of baptism with what our church does. There's many, for instance, that baptize babies. Uh, we don't believe in infant baptism. We have scriptural reasons for that. Um, but there are some great Presbyterian preachers and, and men that I highly revere uh, that baptize babies. And so obviously we disagree on that point. Now, I don't think that is an essential Christian doctrine, meaning I don't think somebody's not a Christian uh, if they baptize babies. However, uh, as a church, we have to decide whether we're going to baptize babies or not. Otherwise, we're going to have a fight every time a baby's born uh, as to whether to baptize it. So there's certain things like that. Um, that as a church, we really have to take a stand on what we're going to do practically uh, in the life of our church. And then another, other issues that are um, covered in the statement are legal issues. So, for instance, our views on marriage and sexuality, our views on abortion, our views on euthanasia, things like that are covered. Um, and some of that's for legal. So, so you'll see some statements in there. You might wonder, why is that there? Uh, it may be just a legal protection for our church to kind of state out front uh, what we believe. So we're going to, um, let me see here. Uh, well, look, if you just want to flip back to the very last page and notice the paragraph, the italicized paragraph on the bottom there, it says, the statement of faith does not exhaust the extent of our faith. The Bible itself is the sole and final source of all that we believe. We do believe, however, that the foregoing statement of faith accurately represents the teaching of the Bible and therefore is binding upon all members. All teaching and literature used in the church shall be in complete agreement with the statement of faith. So that's just kind of what we talked about earlier. This is a requirement for membership, and this is um, 
just setting the guardrails of what our church believes. Now, there is um, more that we believe than what is in the statement. I think it, it says that there, that there's obviously other things that are not covered. The things that are covered are just issues that rise to the level that we as a church need to agree on. Um, so I hope that makes sense. Uh, as we work through the statement, I'm going to be recommending and even giving away some books on uh, some of the topics that we cover. Um, but if you want just one resource <clears throat> that would cover everything we talk about and more, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. If you want to dive deep on this stuff, uh, this is a great resource. And this is the first edition. It's only like 25 bucks now on Amazon. Um, it's 1,200 pages, and it's, it's good stuff. So now I don't recommend you just start from the beginning and read through it. If you have questions about a particular topic, it's all broken up in there. Um, so if you're interested in that, if you have questions, this would be a great resource to go to. Um, let's see here. And then one more thing I want to say before we get into this is uh, this statement of faith is a bit of a work in progress. Um, some of you were here last February. We rewrote the whole statement and, and voted it in. Um, so you might see a typo somewhere. Uh, do point that out to me because I, I do want to catch those and try to fix them. Um, and we also may want to make some changes at certain points that uh, we think something could be phrased better or something, so we may be recommending some changes uh, as we go. This isn't the Bible, of course. It's just a statement of faith. It, it can be changed and edited over time. All right, so for the first section, we're going to be covering Scripture. So if you go back to that first page, you will see the paragraph there entitled Scripture. And we're going to spend at least four weeks on this section. Uh, today we're going to be talking about canonicity, um, and then next week we're going to talk about inspiration. The next week after that will be inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture. And then the last week we'll talk about the transmission and the translation of the text into English. Uh, we're covering this topic in detail for three primary reasons. Uh, first, simply because it's a complex subject. Uh, some of these issues are a little bit uh, uh, detailed, and, and so I'm just going to give you a crash course on them. Uh, second is because this first section is the foundation for the rest of the statement. I hope that's clear over the next few weeks, that the rest of our statement of faith of what we believe is built upon this section of Scripture. Uh, what you believe about Scripture defines everything else. Uh, every other section that we go to, I'm going to be pointing back to the reason we believe this is Scripture. And so we better make sure that our foundation is secure. Why do we believe this about Scripture? Um, because that is uh, that has practical implications for everything else. And then one final reason that I'm taking four weeks to cover this section um, is because we are going to be updating our translation to the ESV. I've mentioned this to you before, uh, but I want to give you, especially in that last week, that fourth week, we're going to be talking about the transmission and translation of the text. Um, so I'll kind of explain some different Bible translations, why there's differences, uh, what those differences are, what are some more reliable and less reliable translations. We'll get into all of those issues um, and I'll also try to explain why we chose the ESV. It wasn't like we just picked out of a hat a random combination of letters and, and went with that. Uh, there are specific reasons why we chose that. So that's what we're going to attempt to cover over the next few weeks. We're going to start by just reading uh, the statement, just the first half of it there. It says, We believe the Word of God, as found in the 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, is God's divinely inspired revelation of himself to mankind and is to be treasured and obeyed. The Holy Spirit superintended human authors in various ways, such that through their individual personalities, vocabularies, and writing styles, they recorded God's word to man without error. Now, there's more to that section, but we just want to start with that um, for the next couple of weeks. And today we're going to talk about that first, the first half of the first sentence. That's all I'm going to try to cover today. 
Uh, we believe the Word of God as found in the 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. That's what we're going to be focusing on, uh, the issue of canonicity. The canon is uh, the list of books that are included in our, in our Bible. So why do we have these 66 books? Um, but before we get started, we're going to watch a movie really quick. The Bible. It's one of the most influential books in human history. It explores the big questions of why we exist. It's inspired many people to do amazing things. And confused many others. And you've probably got one sitting around somewhere. So, what is the Bible actually? Well, the Bible is a small library of books that all emerged out of the history of the people of ancient Israel. And in one sense, they were just like any other ancient civilization. But among them were a long line of individuals called prophets. And they viewed Israel's story as anything but ordinary. They saw it as a central part of what God was doing for all humanity. And these prophets were literary geniuses. Really? Yeah, they expertly crafted the Hebrew language to write epic narratives, very sophisticated poetry. They were masters of metaphor and storytelling, and they leveraged all of this to explore life's most complicated questions about death and life and the human struggle. So there's a lot of different authors writing this book. Yeah, and these texts were produced over a thousand year period, starting with Israel's origins in Egypt, then leading up to their kingdom with their first temple. But eventually they were conquered by the Babylonians who took them away into exile. Then at a crucial moment in their history, many Israelites returned to their land. They built a second temple, they reformed their identity, and this is when the Jewish scriptures began to be formed into the shape that we have them today. Okay, the Jewish Bible, what's in it? Well, in Hebrew, it's called by an acronym, Tanakh. The T stands for Torah, sometimes called the law. That's Israel's five book foundation story. The N stands for Nevi'im, the Hebrew word for prophets. And this section consists of the historical books that tell Israel's story from the prophet's point of view. Then you get the poetic books of the prophets themselves. The K stands for Ketavim, the Hebrew word for writings. This is a diverse collection of poetic books, wisdom books, and more narrative. And the Jewish people believe that through all of these literary works, God speaks to his people. Now, there were other Jewish writings being produced during this second temple period as well. Yeah, a really diverse group of texts. And these two were highly valued in Jewish communities. And there was debate from ancient times about whether or not some of these should be considered part of their scriptures. So this is a lot of different writings over a long period of time. Why did they put them all together like this? Well, altogether, these texts tell an epic story about how God is working through these people to bring order and beauty out of the chaos of our world. And it all builds up to a hope for a new leader who would come and renew all creation. And then the Tanakh concludes, and this leader never comes. So it's an expertly crafted work, but it's missing an ending? That's exactly right. Now, a few centuries later, a Jewish prophet comes onto the scene named Jesus of Nazareth. He claimed he was carrying the Tanakh story forward. Yeah, so Jesus did a bunch of cool stuff was killed, but his followers claimed he was alive from the dead. Yeah, they said that Jesus was that long-awaited leader who would restore the world. And so his earliest followers, called apostles, they composed new literary works about the story of Jesus. They called these good news or the gospel. They formed an account called Acts about the spread of the Jesus movement outside of Israel. And then they circulated letters to different Jesus communities all around the ancient world. And they saw these writings as part of the scripture. Yeah, the apostles wrote all of this as the fulfillment of that epic story found in the Tanakh. And they were continuing the literary genius of the Jewish tradition. 
They also believed that God was speaking to his people through these texts alongside the scriptures of Israel. So that's the Old and New Testament. But what did the early Christians think of the other Second Temple literature? Well, different groups had different views about some of these books, but we know they read them and valued these texts because they passed them along with the Jewish scriptures. Okay, so we've got the Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures. We've got these other Second Temple period works. Then the writing of the apostles about Jesus. And that's a lot of literature, so what's in my Bible? So the Christian movement has taken different forms over 2,000 years, and from the beginning, all Christians recognized the Tanakh and the New Testament as scripture. And for centuries, much of the Second Temple literature was read as part of the biblical tradition. The Catholic Church eventually made it official and called some of the books from this collection the Deuterocanonical books. Some Orthodox churches used even more books from this Second Temple literature. And then in the 1500s, during the Reformation, Protestant Christians wanted to go back to the oldest writings of the prophets and apostles, so they accepted only the Old and New Testaments. Okay, I think I got it. But how does a collection of books produced over a thousand years by all these different authors tell one unified story? Yeah, that's the question we'll address in our next video. Are there any questions from that video? I think all of it was confusing. We're going to go into some of it in more detail. I just want to stop and make sure there's no questions. All right. Uh, we are going to throw in a few of those videos along the way because I think sometimes they can explain things visually very well in a way that uh, makes sense. So the first issue I want to address is uh, which books are included in our Bible and why? Um, as was just explained there, the, the Catholics have a few more books than we do in our Bible. Um, the Mormons, of course, have more books than we do. So why do we hold to these 66 books and no more? Uh, couldn't it be that there's a few out there like the Maccabees or Sirach or something that should be a part of our Bible? Uh, the issue of the canon is an important question because the decision we come to about which books are a part of the Bible has a direct effect on how we will live. Uh, if we're supposed to obey God absolutely in everything that he commands, we need to have certainty in what it is that he has said and, uh, and what things are, are not his word. So where do we get these 66 books? Uh, who decided that these would make up our Bible? Many ways to answer that question. If you Google it, you'll get many wrong answers. Um, you'll hear something like 400 years after Jesus, people kind of uh, met and decided which books were a part of the Bible. Um, and, and that's a very misleading way to, to speak of it. That's referring to the Council of Carthage, uh, where they affirmed the books that we have in our Bible today. But what they affirmed was already the accepted canon. It's not like they just uh, decided which books would be included. Uh, one way to think of this is uh, imagine God appearing to you and saying that he is God. And uh, you have some doubts. You're not sure. And so you, you ask for proof. And God tells you like he did Moses, take your hand, put it inside your coat, and then you take it back out and it's leprous. And then he says, put it back in, and then you take it back out and it's totally clean. Uh, and then you, you bow in reverence, realizing that this is truly God. Um, your affirmation of him did not make him God. You didn't decide he was God. He was God well before you, you affirmed it and recognized it. Uh, in, in other words, when the people met and, dis, and, and decided which books were in the Bible, they were affirming what was already true. They did not make these decisions and, and make something scripture that wasn't already. Um, so they, they were affirming, they were examining the evidence and, and they just added their affirmation to what was already the case. Uh, if somebody were to ask me why I believe that the 66 books of my Bible are scripture, 
I would point to Jesus as the authority. Uh, the, the four Gospels, I believe, are historical accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. And in them, we can see which books he believed were Scripture. So we're going to look first at uh, Luke 24. Malachi, can you advance the slides for me there as we go? Uh, Luke 24, starting in verse 44, says, He said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then open to their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. So Jesus defined the Scriptures as what was written in the Law of Moses, in the Prophets, and in the Psalms. That was Jesus' Bible, and that is the same uh, as our Old Testament. I'll show you that in a moment. Remember the video we just played? Uh, he explained the difference, the Tanakh, the Torah, uh, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. Uh, that was the ordering of the Jewish scrolls. It's, it's the same books, the same 39 Old Testament books we have, uh, just in a different order. And so when Jesus refers to uh, the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, that's what he's talking about. I have a chart up here uh, to show you this. So you, you see here that the first book of the writings is Psalms. So when Jesus says Law, Prophets, and Psalms, this is what he's talking about. Uh, Psalms would have been the book that you opened up to as soon as you opened the scroll, the Ketuvim. Um, so he is referring to the very same books that we have in our Old Testament. The Jewish order is different. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. You notice it starts with Genesis and ends with Second Chronicles, whereas ours starts with Genesis, ends with Malachi. Um, so they switched the order around, a little, or actually we switched the order around. This is the way that Jesus read his Bible. Um, but the point is here that Jesus accepted the very same books that we have. And so when Jesus referred to the scripture and he quoted the Old Testament, he was referring to the very same uh, 39 books that we have in our Bible today. Uh, Matthew 23, verse 34. This is another statement of Jesus where he says, Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you shall kill and crucify. Some of them you shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, the son of Bacharias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Now, I'm sure you're probably wondering, what in the world does that have to do with which books are in the Bible? Um, notice there he talks about the prophets from all the, all the world, and he starts with Abel and ends with Zacharias. Um, and if you look at the Jewish ordering of the books, Abel, if, if you're doing your Bible reading plan, you know this, Abel shows up very early in the book of Genesis. Zacharias dies right here in the end of Second Chronicles. Um, so what he's saying is from Abel to Zacharias, from Genesis to Second Chronicles, uh, we would say from Genesis to Malachi, uh, the whole Old Testament, Jesus considered scripture. Does that make sense? Do you see what, I, what I'm saying there? I don't know if that was clear or not. Um, but he affirmed the same books uh, that we have. <clears throat> as for the Apocrypha, those books that uh, were, were not considered on the same level as Scripture, <clears throat> Josephus says that they were not deemed worthy of equal credit <clears throat> with the earlier records. Josephus was a contemporary of Jesus. And so he, he writes that in Jesus' day, the Jews did not accept those Apocryphal books. Um, the Catholic Church calls them the Deuterocanonical books. Uh, as being a part of the Bible. <clears throat> uh, those were uh, inserted by the Catholic Church about several centuries later, uh, and they were never accepted. To this day, they're not accepted by the Jews as being Scripture. Uh, Jesus seems to have agreed with this, um, because if you read the New Testament, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament many, many times, as do the apostles, and they quote it as Scripture. Um, but they never quote from the Apocrypha as being scripture, as being authoritative. 
Uh, in his systematic theology that I just showed you, Wayne Grudem lists four reasons that the writings of the Apocrypha should not be regarded as a part of Scripture. And I'm just going to blow through these really quick. Number one, they do not claim for themselves the same kind of authority as the Old Testament writings. So if you read the Old Testament, if you read the prophets or something, you'll find uh, over and over the statement, thus says the Lord, uh, or this is, you know, this is from God. It, it says that over and over. The Apocryphal writings uh, do not even claim to be authoritative in that sense. Number two, they were not regarded as God's word, uh, God's words by the Jewish people from whom they originated. Uh, number three, they were not considered to be scripture by Jesus or the New Testament authors. And to me, that's the most relevant point. Uh, I want the Bible that Jesus authorized. And if he didn't consider this to be scripture, uh, I don't either. Number four, they contain teachings inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. Uh, and we'll talk about that more as we get into some of these New Testament books as well. So that's the Old Testament. Um, I, I believe, to me, it's, it's pretty clear cut that if Jesus used these 39 books, these ought to be the ones that we use. Uh, that's pretty much my argument for the Old Testament. Uh, the New Testament is a little bit trickier because the New Testament obviously was written after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. He was gone uh, for a few decades before the New Testament books were written. So how do we know that these 27 New Testament books are scripture? And I would say the answer there is also Jesus. We've seen in our study of Luke that Jesus selected 12 men, 12 men he named apostles, and he trained them and commissioned them uh, to speak on his behalf. They were official representatives of Christ. And so the New Testament is written with apostolic authority. Uh, now we know we have 12 apostles originally, and then Judas, of course, betrays Jesus and commits suicide, so now you're down to 11. Uh, and then Paul the apostle is called by Christ uh, after Jesus has, has already been resurrected, so you're back to 12. Those 12 men uh, were authorized to speak on Jesus' behalf in an official sense. Uh, and so they were, they were selected, they were taught by Christ himself, and they were sent out with his authority. I want to start in Acts 2, verse 41. This is Luke's summarizing of the day of Pentecost. He says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Uh, so those who were saved continued in the apostles' doctrine. And what we have in the 27 New Testament books is the apostles' doctrine. Uh, verse 43 mentions that the apostles did signs and wonders. Um, and so I believe that uh, just like fulfilled prophecy uh, proved that the Old Testament prophets were speaking on behalf of the true God. Uh, the signs and wonders that were done by the apostles uh, verified that their message was from God as well. And so that's kind of the way I, I think of it, is that the prophets <clears throat> were uh, confirmed by God through fulfilled prophecy. The apostles were confirmed by God through their miracles and uh, the signs that they did. They claimed to be speaking on behalf of Christ, and God confirmed that they were by miracles. Uh, the book of Hebrews chapter 2 makes this explicit. Verse 1 says, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. <clears throat> For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? So notice that salvation was first preached by Jesus, and then by those that heard him. That's referring to people like uh, Matthew the Apostle who walked with Jesus, saw his miracles, and then wrote a book about what he saw. And verse 4 
<clears throat> says how it was that God confirmed that their message was true. God also bearing them witness, bearing witness to the people who saw Jesus' works uh, and, and, and wrote about them. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. So God confirmed that what these men were saying was truly from him by signs, wonders, miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit. The author of Hebrews is saying we can have greater confidence in the veracity of the apostles' letters than if an angel were to appear to us and speak the words to us uh, because they were confirmed as authorized speakers for God basically through these things. So God confirmed the apostles' authority to speak on his behalf uh, with signs and wonders. Uh, as we've mentioned, Paul is unique among the apostles because he wasn't selected during Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, he wasn't one who followed Jesus around on earth and, and, and uh, was trained by him in that way. Paul was converted, if you read the book of Acts, uh, on the road to Damascus. And if you read Galatians chapter 1, you'll find out Jesus chose Paul uh, to be an apostle and personally trained him for that work. So after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, Jesus appears to Paul and gives him revelation. Uh, Paul basically gets one-on-one -on -one training with Jesus in Arabia before he uh, goes out and begins to write his letters. Uh, Galatians chapter 1, I'm not going to read all this, but if you're interested, you can read that later. Uh, verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by men, but by, the, by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So here Paul is defending the fact that Jesus chose him to be an apostle. And the miraculous signs of an apostle were also seen in Paul. Uh, he writes in 2 Corinthians 12, Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you, and all patience and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. He's referring there to uh, when he was there. They, they witnessed uh, God's affirmation of his apostolic ministry through those miracles. And so let's tie some of this together. Luke eleven forty nine. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles. Okay, so God has sent prophets and he sent apostles uh, as his messengers, as his spokesmen. Therefore, whatever is written by the prophets and whatever is written by the apostles is the word of God. Okay, do you follow that? So they're the spokesmen of God. So if an apostle wrote it, it's from God. If a prophet, or if a true prophet wrote it, it's from God. Um, 2 Peter chapter 3 says that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. And there you see prophets and apostles put on the same level there. Whenever they speak, they're speaking on behalf of God. And this is one reason that we believe the canon is closed, uh, meaning uh, we're not looking for more books to be added to our Bible in the future uh, because the, the apostles are dead. None of them are here. And so if somebody like, for instance, Joseph Smith comes around and claims to be speaking on behalf of God, uh, we know that he's not because he's not an apostle of Jesus. And so there, there are no apostles alive today, therefore no one today has the authority to speak on God's behalf. Ephesians 2, verse 20, uh, speaking of the church, it says it was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Uh, the foundation is the first thing you build when constructing a house. Uh, you put down the foundation, then you build everything else on top of that. And so the foundation of the church is the apostles and prophets, which is just a way of referring to Scripture, because uh, these are the words of the apostles and prophets. And so anything written by the prophets of the Old Testament or by the apostles of the New Testament, that is Scripture. So to summarize, we believe that the 66 books of our Bible are Scripture because, first, Jesus confirmed the first 39. He quoted from them. He referred to them as Scripture. 
And the last 27 books were written by the apostles of Jesus who were specifically chosen by him to be official representatives. And they were confirmed <clears throat> to be true apostles by signs and wonders, which was God's way of just confirming that their message was truly from him. We can see that the early church believed this as well. It's interesting, even as the New Testament was being written, uh, they understood that what they were receiving at that time was Scripture, just like the Old Testament. Second uh, Peter 3, Peter writes this. He's talking about Paul's epistles. He says, the account, uh, An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of th these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. So Paul is talking about, I'm sorry, Peter is talking about Paul's letters. And he says that in Paul's letters, there's some things that are hard to understand. I think we can all agree with that. Uh, and he says that people that are ignorant and unlearned uh, twist Paul's words, just like they do the other scriptures. And so there you see that Peter is elevating Paul's writings to the level of the Old Testament. He calls them all scripture. Um, I don't know if we want to move. Is there any questions at this point? Any questions? Catherine has a question. You good? You sure? Okay, you look like you have them. Uh, I'll, I'll ask a question that I was expecting somebody to ask. What about the books that weren't written by the apostles? Uh, because some of the New Testament books were not written by Jesus' 12 apostles. So we're going to look at that really quick. I want to uh, give you a chart here and just go through the authorship quickly of the, so we can see this. Uh, first one is Matthew. Now, Matthew was an apostle of Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He was one of the 12. We can take him off. Uh, John was also an apostle. So we can take off his gospel. Uh, next, you have uh, Romans through Philemon. All of those books were written by the apostle Paul. Okay, so those are all gone. Uh, second, first and second Peter were written by the apostle Peter. The three books of John were written by John the apostle. Revelation was also written by John. And so you're left with these six books <clears throat> that there are questions about. Uh, these are the books that we don't know for sure were written by apostles. We're going to work through each of those. <clears throat> First is uh, the book of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Um, and there has been debate uh, literally going back over a thousand, almost 2,000 years. Almost since it was written, there has been debate over who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, early on, it was believed that the apostle Paul wrote it. Um, nowadays, most scholars would, would say that's not the case due to the grammar and syntax in Greek. It doesn't seem to be his vocabulary. Um, but there's all sorts of debate about this. Some people think Apollos wrote it. Uh, some people, there's all sorts of theories. Uh, but because we don't know, it would be pure speculation for me to tell you who I think wrote it, uh, which I would gladly do, but we really don't have time to get into that. I do have a theory. If you have questions, I'll, I'll talk to you about that later. Uh, but because we don't know for sure that this wasn't written by an apostle, I'm going to take that off. Okay, the next ones are James and Jude. Now, James and Jude were written by brothers, uh, James gives us his name at the beginning of his letter and says that it was written by James. And then Jude uh, mentions that he was James' brother. I want you to see this in James chapter 1, verse 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. So there, the book of James was clearly written by somebody named James. Uh, Jude, verse 1, starts off with this. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Okay, so Jude was written by somebody named Jude or Judas. Jude is just a shortening for the name Judas. <clears throat> uh, and this Judas was James's brother. <clears throat> now, we don't know exactly who these two are. There's, um, 
Some have suggested that the book of James was written by Jesus' brother and that his other brother, Judas, wrote the book of Jude. And in Matthew 13, verse 55, we do see that Jesus had two brothers with these names. These are the people speaking of Christ. They say, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And so there you see James and Judas. There's two people by that name that are brothers of Jesus Christ. Uh, Half-brothers, of course. They're not obviously... Uh, Holy Spirit children, but they're Joseph and Mary's kids. Uh, so you've got these two brothers. Uh, they're possible candidates for who could have written this. And this has been a, a popular theory. Uh, there's also another possibility that I personally think is more plausible of an explanation. Uh, I think that the James who wrote the book of James was one of the apostles, uh, that it is James, the son of Alphaeus. And his brother is Thaddeus, but he also goes by the name Judas. I want us to look at Luke chapter 6. This is the list of the 12 apostles. <clears throat> when Jesus is calling them, it says, When it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose 12, whom also he named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes, and jo Judas the brother of James. And then you also have Judas Iscariot. Don't get the two Judases confused. One betrayed Jesus, one was a good guy. Uh, but you have a James there, and you have a Judas who was James's brother. <clears throat> and that's exactly how Jude introduces himself at the beginning of his letter, as James's brother. Uh, in the list of the apostles that were present in the upper room, we see a very uh, similar identification in Acts 1.13. It says, When they were come in, they went into an upper room, where abode both Peter and James and John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, Zelotus, and Judas, the brother of James. And so again, you see him known as Judas, the brother of James. Um, so my personal opinion here is that the book of James was not written by Jesus' brother, uh, but was actually written by James, the son of Alphaeus, who was an apostle of Christ, uh, and Judas, his brother, who was also one of the 12 apostles. And so for that reason, we can take them off the list. Now we've got three books left. Uh, the book of Mark... <coughs> Um, is anonymous. Nowhere in the book does it say that it was written by anybody named Mark. Uh, that's purely from church history that people believe that it was. Um, but Mark was a scribe, and, it, and we know that he worked with Peter. He was a part of Peter's ministry. And so history records anyway that uh, Peter is really the author of Mark's gospel. Mark was the scribe, Peter dictated it, and Mark wrote it down. So essentially we could call this Peter's gospel. Uh, the information came from the apostle Peter, so he's off the list too. We're left with two books, Luke and Acts. Uh, both of these were written by Luke, the physician. If you want to know how we know that, go back online to my first sermon in Luke's gospel. I spent like 20 minutes uh, explaining the authorship of the book of Luke. Uh, but Luke was not an apostle. Luke was not one of the 12 apostles. Uh, and if you're looking to question any of the New Testament books, it would be Luke's because it was not written by an apostle directly. And it was also not dictated by an apostle like Mark's gospel was. Uh, this was written by a non-apostle. So, the question is, should we take Luke and Acts out of our New Testament? Uh, I hope not, otherwise I haven't been preaching from the Bible the last year, uh, so that would be a problem. But I, I believe there's good reason uh, to include it. We really don't have to wonder about how Luke got his information, because Luke tells us uh, in the very uh, intro to his gospel, we'll look at this in detail in a couple of weeks, but I just want to look at it quickly now. Luke 1, verse 1 he says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, 
having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Uh, that is Luke's defense. He is writing based upon eyewitness accounts, he says in verse 2, uh, that people have written down and have spoken to him and given him this information. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry. And so he used sources to write his gospel. Uh, we know Luke was a traveling companion of Paul's, uh, so he would have had uh, basically an apostolic stamp of approval, if you will, on his book uh, as being one of Paul's fellow laborers. But if that doesn't settle the debate for you as to whether Luke's books are scripture, I want to give you one final argument. That comes from 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, Paul is writing here about how a church should pay its pastor. Really good stuff, by the way. And he quotes from two places in the scripture to back up his point. Uh, 1 Timothy 5.18 says, For the scripture saith, so he's about to quote from scripture, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and... The laborer is worthy of his reward. So Paul says, as he's making this argument, that the scripture says, don't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. That's a, that's a quotation from Deuteronomy. And then he says, the scripture also says, the laborer is worthy of his reward. And that second quotation is only found one place in the Bible, and that is Luke chapter 10, verse 7, where Jesus is speaking to his apostles, and he says, in the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. It's the very same phrase in Greek. Um, so this is clearly what Paul is referring to, and he calls it Scripture. He puts it on the same level as uh, the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. So, to recap, the Old Testament books, uh, I accept as Scripture personally because Jesus said so. Uh, those are the ones that he quoted from, the ones that he referred to. And the 27 books were written by uh, those apostles who Jesus had given authority to speak on his behalf. Uh, God confirmed this by giving them the ability to work miracles as confirmation uh, that they were so authorized. Uh, let's see here. I don't know if I have time to really go into this too much. Uh, I will mention, I do think the apostles wrote more than what we have in the New Testament. Um, for instance, if you read 1 Corinthians, he talks about a letter he had already written, so obviously there's more than just the two letters of Corinthians. Um, most biblical scholars would say there's at least four that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Um, and I think those would have been scripture just as much as anything else. Uh, they were official spokesmen for Christ, so when they, whenever they wrote uh, some sort of doctrinal uh, letter to somebody, it was as if it was coming from Jesus himself. Um, so yes, there, there were other books that they wrote, there were other letters that they wrote. Um, and I kind of think of it as a, a preacher's you know, YouTube video going viral. You know, some of these letters were copied and circulated enough times to where they survived to us today, and that's how we have them. Um, I, I, it's doubtful that we're ever going to find any book uh, written by Paul that we don't know about. Um, people have been searching for a long time and they've never found them. So some of those were lost to history. Um, and I think we just have to trust that the Holy Spirit guided the process to give us what he wanted us to have. But on the issue of canon, I think we can have confidence in the books that we have in our Bible, that they should be scripture. And there really are no good candidates, uh, additional candidates for inclusion that aren't a part of our Bible uh, right now. If you want additional reading on this, um, there's a few books I would recommend. First of all, Michael Kruger has written very helpfully on this subject. It's, it's a deep book. It takes a little bit of background knowledge to understand. I'll just say that up front. Uh, but if you really want to dive deep, Michael Kruger's Questions on Canon uh, and Canon Revisited are two good volumes from him. If you want a simple introduction um, to this, well, first of all, Grudem has a really good section on it. But this little book right here, uh, I've got about a half dozen copies on the back table. If you want one, take one home. They're free. 
Um, my only request is please read it within the next like two months. Don't have it sit on your shelf if you take one. But anybody is, is certainly invited to take one home. And uh, this basically covers everything we're going to be talking about the next four weeks. Uh, very simple, very accessible. I think anybody could read it and understand it. You don't have to know Greek or anything. Uh, he, this is just a pastor writing uh, to an average, you know, a new Christian could pick this up and read it. In fact, if you know somebody that's skeptical of Christianity because of these issues, this would be a good book for, to, for you to give them. Um, because it really does defend, you know, how we got our Bible, the trustworthiness of Scripture, and all that process.